0: Well, good morning, Riverside. You know, know, today was Jim's first time leading the Lord's Supper, our newest elder, and I just think he did a great job clearly presenting the gospel. Thank you, Jim. And if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, we're just getting going in our series. This is only our third week in Nehemiah. Uh, The series title is, that's not it. I'm going to back up a little, John. Uh, From the beginning, there should be a series slide in there. But if not, it's called Rising from the Ruins. Oh. Who put those together? (laughs) Well, we're in the series in Nehemiah Rising from the Ruins. And as as we're preparing for that... um, Think about this. What is the biggest or hardest or heaviest thing that the Lord has ever called you to do? The biggest thing that God's ever called you to do. Maybe it was frightening to think about. Maybe you didn't respond. Maybe you didn't do it. Maybe you did. But think about that. I think for me, probably the biggest thing God ever called me to do is to make this change from corporate life to full-time ministry almost 10 years ago, but it wasn't the hardest thing. I think the hardest thing I ever had to do was to share the gospel with my dad. For whatever reason, that for me was a lot harder Um, I shared with you the story though, my dad did give his life to the Lord, I'm so thankful I had the prayers of the men in this church and many others behind me as I shared that week not long before he passed away. But to me that was hard, but when God calls us to do something really difficult or really big or really heavy, weighty, I think there's two mistakes that we can easily make. One of those is forgetting God's role. If the Lord calls us to do something, then it's the Lord that wants to work through us. And it's the Lord that gives us the wisdom and the strength and the resources to get it done. And we can go into it in our own strength, forgetting that God is behind it. See, I like the saying, where God guides, God provides. And so we need to keep that in mind. But a second mistake we can make is in taking too passive of a view of our own role. We can think, well, if it's God's work, He's gonna get it done with or without me. I don't need to do anything. Some people, maybe you've heard the saying, let go and let God. You just need to let go and let God. I don't know why I feel like I have to say that with a southern accent. <laughs> it's a something weird in me. But 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 you hear that and I think what you're going to see in Nehemiah is that doesn't really hold. I mean, maybe sometimes that's right on, but oftentimes I don't believe it is. Um, Even when it's a God-inspired, God-empowered project that's bathed in prayer, there's still a lot of practical planning and hands-on work to be done. And so, I like to say rather than let going, let God know you need to get in the will of God and get going. God has something for us in that that he wants to do. So those two things I hope that we'll see. And what I love about Nehemiah is it has a beautiful balance between the spiritual and the physical. Between praying, seeking, waiting on the Lord. And between getting moving, planning, preparing and putting into action. So this is what I love about the book of Nehemiah. So with that in mind, probably now the title series is going to come up in the wrong place. Our series title is is Rising from the Ruins. And we're going to see more of that this morning. And uh, the message title that I chose for today is Heavy Lifting. And it's a longer text. We're going to finish chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 9, and then all of chapter 3. And two parts to it, planning to work, that's going to be chapter 2. And then we're going to see Nehemiah working a plan in chapter 3. And again, it's, it's, it's a fairly long text. The second half of it is filled with Hebrew names. I will show you how to mispronounce those, I promise. I've been practicing. And we've already seen in the first Chapter and a half that Nehemiah had this heavy burden on his heart, a heavy burden for the condition of the city of Jerusalem. But it was really a burden for the people of Jerusalem and for the glory of the Lord. The walls were broken down and the gates were burned, and they hadn't been repaired. And so the people were vulnerable, they were defenseless in the city. And many of the Jews chose not to move back. So he saw the disgrace that was upon the people and upon the Lord. So he gave this burden over to the Lord in prayer, we saw in chapter 1. And at the right time, he acted boldly. And he asked the king, the Persian king Artaxerxes, for permission to return to Jerusalem to build the city walls and gates and the city itself. But even more boldly than that, he asked for authorization and protection And he asked for resources to get it done. And so in verse eight, we saw last time, this is where we ended. It said, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. And so then we pick it up in verse nine this morning and we're gonna look at planning the work, first of all. So verse nine, it says, so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. Those are the letters of authorization, of support. And the king had also sent army officers in Calvary with me. This is a pagan king. God moved on his heart to support Nehemiah and his work. Imagine what it would be like being sent out with that type of authority. You've got authorization from the most powerful king in the world at the time. The Persian king Artaxerxes. King of the Medo-Persian Empire. And he sends you out with this full authority. Imagine what that would feel like. Like the sense of purpose that you'd have, the confidence, even the power that you would feel as you go out with that authorization. It it hardly compares, but about 10 years ago, just before moving into pastoral ministry, when I was still in my corporate role, I was hired by a private equity firm to go do a technical evaluation of a company that they were looking to buy, and It wasn't like a General Motors, but it wasn't a small company either. They had about 60 branches in the U.S. and Canada. They were about $500 million. And they gave me authorization letters to go into this company. And it was like carte blanche. I got to talk to the executive, anything I wanted to know, open up the books, the CEO, the CFO. I got to see all of their facilities. Basically, they said, whatever you ask for, they will give it to you. They will show you. They will answer And and it was kind of a weird feeling going in there with that authority. It wasn't me. It was the authority that this company had placed in me to go into this this business. It it, it was kind of cool. But the feeling didn't last for long. I got home in that weekend. I'm back to painting bathrooms and pulling weeds. And everything else kind of brought me back down to earth. But it was a little bit of this feeling of being sent out with authority. Well, you know what? If you're a believer in Christ, you've been sent out with an even greater authority than Nehemiah. An even greater authority, certainly, than what I had when I went to survey that business. Because if you're a believer in Christ, you've been sent out with all authority. Remember what Jesus said? Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I'm giving it to you, he said. He says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. There is no authority like having the authority of the King of Kings, and he has sent you out. What an awesome thing. Believers are sent out with his full authority. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. The power to change lives with the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And remember, it's God who does this work through us. It's him doing the work. And just like Nehemiah, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't let fear keep us from doing the will of God. So we have great resources on our side. Well, Nehemiah goes out. And in verse 10, it says, When Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We're going to hear a lot about these two guys, Sanballat and and Tobiah. They're governors of the regions to the north of Jerusalem and to the east of Jerusalem. And they're like the nemesis of Nehemiah. They will oppose him throughout this whole project. And what they're saying here kind of sounds like anti-Semitism, doesn't it? They say they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. How dare they? Why weren't they in favor of the welfare for all people? Why single out the Israelites? I mean, maybe it was racial or geopolitical on the surface, but I think it was, beneath that, I think it was spiritual. There was... A spiritual opposition to the work that Nehemiah was going to be doing. See whenever God calls us to do a work. Whenever he is at work. There will always be opposition. It might not come across as hostile. It might not be somebody pointing a gun at you. It could. But probably not. But it will be opposition nonetheless. Let me, let me help you think about maybe some ways you've experienced this. Maybe you make a commitment to start reading your Bible every day. And suddenly, some fascinating TV series or podcast captures your attention and starts taking more and more of your time. Where did that come from? Or maybe you've made a commitment to start serving at the church and then suddenly there's some new offer or opportunity from your employer or a social group that's going to take a greater commitment of your time. Or maybe... You've made a commitment to purity as a single. And all of a sudden, this really attractive but morally loose person starts taking an unusual interest in you. Where's that coming from? It's opposition. It's spiritual opposition to the good work that God is doing. The enemy of God hates to see spiritual progress. And Nehemiah would face this... This opposition, even violent opposition throughout this project. So in verse 11, it says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So he doesn't make a big deal of it. But this was like a three-month journey. This would have been about 900 miles from Susa in a Persian empire to Jerusalem. That's no small feat in itself. So when he gets here, he rests up for three, three days and then he sets out to survey the wall. In verse 13, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. So he goes out one gate and he makes a circuit around the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now again, this is a God-ordained work. Yet, look at how practical Nehemiah's approach to it was. He didn't just sit there in the house expecting God to just download everything he needed to know to do the job he was a, a man of prayer but he didn't just sit around he started preparing he got out and started surveying the situation and developing a plan all the while trusting that God would lead him as he does This is part of that get up and get going that I was talking about. Bill Bright, he just passed away recently. He was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he said this, Remember, just as the turning of a steering wheel of an automobile does not alter its direction unless it is moving, so God cannot direct our lives unless we are moving for him. Isn't that a good quote? I don't feel the Lord leading. (laughs) Maybe you're not moving We do at some point have to move forward in faith and let God direct us. So Nehemiah does this. He gets moving and he allows God to guide him as he goes. And in verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. See, he wasn't merely practical. He was wise too. He was white. He didn't run out in the streets and start shouting, I'm here on a mission from God, and you all are gonna be doing this, and start telling everybody. He didn't do that. Instead, he slipped out at night. Didn't wanna rile up anybody's concern unnecessarily. He slipped out at night and he started surveying the work that would need to be done. He'd first gather his information and prepare his plan, and only then does he present it. To the officials and to the workers. Verse 17 says. Then I said to them. Then. There's a lot that happened. Just like with that trip to Jerusalem. There's a lot in those couple words. Then. After I had done my surveying. And my preparing. And my plan. And I prayed over it and submitted it to the Lord. Then. Then. um, I, I started presenting it. Now. Following the Lord is not an excuse to move forward without a plan. It's not. Well, I'll just work by faith and figure it out as I go. Well, that's not spiritual, that's stupid. We want to be prepared and God works through the plan that we prepare as we seek him. Jesus said, suppose one of you goes to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? See, a wise man makes a plan, but not his own plan. We should seek the Lord as we make our plan. See, here's the thing. Prayer and planning, they go hand in hand. It's the spiritual and the physical working together to find God's will and implement it. Listen to this. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. That's the right balance once again. Now, Dale will be writing the Encore curriculum this week again on Monday and that's our follow-up to the Sunday message it's a chance to go deeper and make application of the text that's in there and so maybe a good thing to consider in that and as you work through that is do I have the right balance of prayer and planning am I doing all the planning but not committing my plans to the Lord am I just trying to use my own intellect or on the other hand am I just praying about it and not doing anything to actually develop a plan that God can work through. So you can wrestle with that. Think about your own, your own challenges, your own projects, jobs, ministries. How are you handling those two? So Encore, you can, again, you can have it emailed to you. Or there will be a copy in the office each week. Or you can download it on the website. But verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in and Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now, it's interesting to me that the Israelites had all the manpower they needed to do this job. In fact, they had most of the resources. The stones were still there from when Nebuchadnezzar tore them down. They needed some new wood from the the gates that were burned, for the gates that were burned, but everything was there in place, and they had 90 years to rebuild this wall. But it was still sitting there in its ransacked condition. Now I know we talked last week about the prophecy and how God foretold the exact timing that this project would start and he wove that into his entire plan. But I still have to wonder, were there others that God would have used earlier to do the job had they been willing? 90 years. Maybe they didn't think they could do it. It was too big for them. Or maybe they didn't feel like they had the time or the resources, or maybe they were too afraid, or maybe they just didn't care. I think there are things that God wants us to do, but we're not willing, and so we decline. You might say, but God is sovereign, Paul, and if he really wants me to do it, he'd make me do it. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. God is sovereign, Yet in his sovereignty, he gives us freedom to resist his will. Think about that. Jesus said, oh, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Now, here's the thing. People can resist the will of God, but this is the important part. But they will never thwart the plan of God, but they can resist his will. They won't thwart the plan of God. Do you remember what Mordecai said to Esther? Yeah, I love this. He said, if you remain silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Had Esther not been willing to do what God called her to do, he would have still gotten it done. Deliverance would have come from someone else. She was willing, thankfully, and Nehemiah was willing, and we need to be willing as well. We can resist the will of God. We won't thwart the plan of God, but I just wonder, were there others that God wanted to get that done through a lot sooner, and maybe they just weren't willing? Well, Nehemiah, he challenges the people to start rebuilding, and in verse 18, they replied, let us start rebuilding, so they began this good work. Uh, the ESV and the New King James has a little more literal translation. It says, let us rise up and build. I like that. Let's get up and get going. Let's do this. Let's rebuild this wall. So the people have a, a leader in Nehemiah. Workers need leaders. Leaders need workers. Leaders can't do it on their own. Workers will struggle to do it without leadership. So we see both coming together. And then verse 19... But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, officials, and Gershom the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered him by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We're, uh, we his servants will start building. And as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So here's our friend Sanballat and Tobiah again. And this time they rounded up Gershon the Arab (laughs) along with them to oppose Nehemiah. They knew Nehemiah was not opposing the will of the king. They had seen the letters. I think we saw that back in verses 9 and 10. They saw the letters of authority. They knew he wasn't. So they couldn't stop him legally. So what did they do? They started ridiculing and mocking him. It might not seem like that big of a weapon, but words can often be very effective. How many times have we not done something we should have out of fear of what others might think or say? Has that kept us from doing something? Ridicule mockery. In World War II, the Japanese had a radio broadcaster that the Americans dubbed the Tokyo Rose. Remember that? And it was propaganda aimed at demoralizing the U.S. troops. She'd say things like, orphans of the Pacific, you are really orphans now. How will you get home now that your ships are sunk? And she would tell the troops that their wives back home had been cheating on them. She'd say everything she could to demoralize the Allied troops. Well, Nehemiah's opponents took a similar approach. And the opponents of Ezra did just a decade before. The same thing. Your opponents will do the same thing. They'll turn to ridicule. People can say some pretty discouraging things. So how did Nehemiah deal with it? And how do we deal with it when that discouragement, when that ridicule comes? Here's how he did it. He kept the right perspective. He looked to God rather than looking at his circumstances. He said, the God of heaven will give us success. It's, this is the same title that he used in chapter 1. The God of heaven, the only true God of the universe. The God who created all this. The God who has the power to intervene. The God who has the love and compassion to want to intervene. The God of heaven who's on my side. That's the one who will give us success. He had the right perspective. Remember when David was going up against Goliath? Remember that? His own king Saul ridiculed him. He said, you're only a boy. What are you going to do? You're only a boy. But he wasn't deterred. Goliath himself said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And how did David respond? He kept the right perspective and he looked to God rather than his circumstances. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. He kept the right perspective just like Nehemiah. David knew who was on his side, the God of heaven. That same God is on our side when we're following his will, when he calls us to something too big for ourselves, he's on our side, empowering us, enabling us to do it. So if we're going to do heavy lifting in ministry, we need to have the right perspective. We need to realize who it is that's at work through us. If it's God's will that we do something, then he will also give us the strength and the resources to get it done. Once again, where God guides, God provides. God provides. I was doing my through the Bible reading this week and I came across Psalm 44 3 and it says it was not by their sword that they won the land nor did their arm bring them victory it was your right hand your arm and the light of your face for you loved them oh that our own military would remember that the victories that we have experienced in this country, we want to think now that that's our strength, that's our latest technology. You know what? If we go into battle apart from the Lord, we're going to lose. It's the Lord who gave them the strength and the victory, Psalm 44.3. So we need to maintain that right perspective like Nehemiah did. He knew this was God's work, and they were there by God's will, and so God would give him the victory. He had the right perspective, and he just brushed off their ridicule. That's that's how he planned his work. And so now I want to look at how he worked the plan. Chapter 3. Now this is, <laughs> I've almost been kind of, this is not the most exciting chapter in Nehemiah. I got to tell you, it's basically a list of all the people who worked in the work that they did. When I first started reading this early this week, I God, what is this? (laughs) What are you going to teach us out of this? Are you kidding me? Um, But all scripture is God-breed, amen? Suitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So I'm counting on the Lord to bring something out of this. This is where all the names come in that I've been working so hard to mispronounce for you. So chapter 3. There's a lot here. We're going to... Kind of breaking it up into some chunks here. So chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went, went to work to rebuild the, ship, the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of 100, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meramah, son of Uriah, the son of, the son of Hakoah, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezer, Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zodok, the son of Bano, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The the Jeshana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pesha, and Meshulam, son of Bethsaida. They laid its beams. There's some good baby names in here too. (laughs) They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the, by the men from Gibeon, and Mizpah, Mel- Melatiah and Gibeon, and, and Jodan of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governors of the trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Herahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs to the next next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphaiah son of Hur, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Hurmoth, Horm, <laughs> made repairs opposite his house. And Hatush, son of Hashbaniah, made repairs next to him. Malai, son of Haram and Hashub, son of Path of Moab, repaired another section of the tower. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. We'll stop there. I need a breather. Well, first, when we think about the walls of Jerusalem being restored, we shouldn't think about something like this. That's not a wall. That's <laughs> the saying goes... That's a wall. Okay, this is one of the walls of Jerusalem. Granted, it's a later wall, but look at the size of it. And here's a later 15th, 16th century gate, the Lion's Gate. But you can see how enormous it is when you think about a wooden gate swinging on hinges. This thing was huge. And then here's the Golden Gate. Now, this is 3rd century, and it was built on top of an earlier gate, even earlier, And notice it's all plugged up. Well, the Muslims did that. Probably because of the Christian tradition that when Christ returns, he'll enter through that gate. He'll enter the city of Jerusalem through that gate. And so they built cemeteries and they blocked up the wall. I have news for them. Those little bricks aren't going to stop him. Amen. But they blocked it up nonetheless. So... This is an artist's rendition of what the walls and its towers and gates might have looked like at the time of Nehemiah. And the wall would have been, to give you a sense of the scale, about two and a half miles long, enclosing 220 acres. Now, nothing remained of the wall of Nehemiah's time. It was thought until 2007, when a female archaeologist named Elat Mazar, Elat Mazar, unearthed about a 90 meter section of Nehemiah's wall where you could clearly see his repairs and look at you see the lady standing in the upper right hand side of that wall that gives you a sense of the size of this it was right at 40 feet tall it was anywhere I couldn't get a a firm number but it's anywhere from 8 to 24 feet wide depending on where you are along the wall Here's, here's a picture of the overall excavation site and all of this it was buried underground and they found Persian pottery in and amongst the ruins of the wall or the actual structure of the wall what was Persian pottery doing there where did where did Nehemiah and his gang come from Persia Susa so they found this pottery and they definitively dated this to the time of Nehemiah 5th century BC and before now you can't really get a sense of it. So I highlighted this area in blue. These are towers. These would have been some of the towers that Nehemiah rebuilt. And they rebuilt on top of an older wall. This area in red, this is part of the wall. You can see the, the, the difference there. The part of the wall that Nehemiah rebuilt. There's just no question about the authenticity of this. And so now, let's let's go back to the other picture for a moment. And here you can see those towers. And then this in red is the part of the wall that Nehemiah had to rebuild. Now, he didn't have to rebuild the whole thing. And it, it was portions of it that had been torn down. And so they went in and they rebuilt those portions of it. They could even tell where this part of the wall had been more hastily rebuilt. But... Clear demarcation between the original wall and the rebuilt portions of it. There's more of this thing underground. It's just, it's underneath people's houses and businesses and they can't dig it up. But they found a significant portion of the wall, just like scripture says. So, and the amazing thing, they did it all, is we'll see in chapter 6, in 52 days. Two and a half miles of wall. Awesome work. So, How did Nehemiah tackle such a a huge, enormous project as this? Well, it's a little bit like the story of a professor who heard that there was a dinosaur still alive in the rainforests of South America. And so he sets out on an expedition to try to find it. And after weeks of searching, he comes across this little native man in a loincloth standing beside a dead dinosaur. And the, the professor said, Did you kill that dinosaur? And little Nape-man says, Yep, I did. And he goes, Well, he's so big and you're so little, how did you do it? He said, I killed him with my club. And the professor stunned, he goes, Well, how big is your club? He says, Oh, there's about a hundred of us. <laughs> there's power in numbers. This is how Nehemiah tackled the wall. We're going to see that there were thousands of people involved in this rebuilding. So let's keep reading. Verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkai, son of Rekab, ruler of the district of Beth Hecarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalun, son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down to the city of David. Now, workers recently uncovered the original pool of Siloam too around 2005. I I didn't have time to pull together pictures of it, but it's awesome. It's there exactly as it's described in scripture. That's the pool where Jesus had the blind man go bathe and he got his sight back. It's all right there in the wall beside it. It's really cool what they found just this century in Jerusalem. So verse 16. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, different Nehemiah, ruler of the half, half district of Beth-zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs are made by the Levites under Rahum, son of Benai. Beside him... Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kila, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs are made by their countrymen, under Benue, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half-district of Kala Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as, and as, far as the angle. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. Need another breather. Now, notice again, there's all kinds of people working on this wall in all classes of people. It mentions in here priests and Levites and even a number of rulers or, or what we might call governors in our day. In fact, seven different rulers are mentioned throughout these verses. Wouldn't it be great to have, like, Governor Pritzker come down and work on our bathroom remodel? (laughs) Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, this is kind of what's happening. These surrounding governors, rulers, were coming to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem to the glory of God. Well, the text mentions goldsmiths, perfume makers... And merchants, I'll, I'll bet that one section of the wall smelled pretty good, huh? Perfume makers out there. One man in verse 12, it says, even had his daughters helping them. They probably wanted some of that perfume as they're working next to this man. There were all types of people involved. And I'll bet very few, if any of them, had experience in heavy construction. I bet none of them were, were used to this kind of heavy lifting, manual labor. And that they got out there... And they got it done because the Lord enabled them to get it done. Almost everyone had a part. They worked together toward a common goal. And Nehemiah organized them and led them in this. But there was one group of people that refused to work. Take a look at verse 5. It says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. I don't know what was up with them, but maybe they thought it was beneath them. Not gonna, these are the nobles. I'm not gonna go out there and build a wall. Maybe they thought they could just pay someone to do it. Maybe it was a pride thing, maybe they were just lazy. They'd become comfortable in their wealth and they were just lazy. Don't know. But they weren't willing. They weren't willing. In a church environment like we have. Unless everyone is working, it's hard. It will be hard for our church to accomplish the purpose God has for us. Unless everybody is using the gifts God's given. The pastors and leaders can't do all the work, nor are they meant to. I have to remind myself of this because I'm a doer. I would rather go paint the bathrooms than have to sit down and, and, and really work hard through the word of God. I like doing things with my hands, but that's not what God tells me I'm supposed to do. See, the work of church leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body may be built up. That's Ephesians 4.12. God calls all of us to be more than just faithful attenders. He calls us to be willing workers to use the gifts he's given us. And when we do, he provides the strength and the wisdom and the resources to get it done. We um, heard last week, wasn't it beautiful at our family meeting, Riverside family meeting, to hear of all the work that's being done around the church. Not just physical work, but spiritual work. The teachers, the nursery workers, the remodeling, all of that that's being done. And yet, we have some needs that still are not met. We need a deacon of helps. I'll say it again. Unless we have a deacon of helps. Riverside, we can't care for the people of this church the way God would have us care for them. And we've been about four years without a deacon of helps. When someone's sick, when, I mean, we can't make all of those calls and coordinate all of those meals and needs. There's people who are leading our meals ministry and cards and flower ministry and calling people. But we need a leader to organize all that to communicate back to the elders what the needs are. See, unless we're all using our gifts, we're not going to be able to minister to the body the way God would have us. And once those pieces are in place, who knows who he might want to bring into our congregation and what spiritual and and physical needs they might have. So we, we need to prepare, equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So Nehemiah was a fantastic leader in this regard. Okay, one more chunk of, maybe two more chunks of this, verse 22. Here we go. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin, the Hashub made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binuai, the son of Henadad repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living in the hill of Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the Menetikoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower of the wall to Ophel. Now, the men of Tekoa, that's the men whose nobles didn't want to work, but here the other people are doing two sections. It says they repaired another section. These guys really stepped up. They did more than most of them. They took on two sections of the wall. Then verse 28, Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Amur, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hunan, the sixth, of, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Melkiah, One of the goldsmiths made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Well, in this chapter, there are 38 people called out by name. And there's 42 groups of workers, probably representing thousands and thousands of people and I think it's kind of cool that God has recorded for us the names of these people and the work that they did. He didn't, he didn't let it just fade into history. It didn't go unnoticed by God. And you know what? Neither does the work that you and I do. It doesn't go unnoticed by God. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain all of our labor and other stuff, it's it's one day going to pass away but your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Even the work that no one else sees. Right? The work done in secret. God sees it. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, Matthew 6 says. So we we can take comfort knowing that God sees, He knows and He rewards our work that's done in the Lord. Well, I just want to recap as we wrap this whole thing up. When it comes to big, oh, I'm one slide behind. When it comes to big, heavy lifting, big and small projects that God might call us to, here's some things that we want to keep in mind. First of all, we have to be careful that we don't forget God's role in it. He provides the wisdom, the strength, the resources to get it done. We have nothing to be afraid of. Where God guides, God provides. If he lays it on your heart, if you pray over it and he calls you to that ministry, to that deacon role, to that teacher role, to that meals, preparation, delivery role, he will give you what you need to get the job done. We also shouldn't be too passive in our own role. God wants to do his work through us. It's not... Let go and let God, it's getting the will of God and get going. I think sometimes we need kind of a little kick in the butt. Unless we're moving, God can't steer us. It's just as simple as that. Oh, that's all out of order. Unless we're moving, God can't steer us. I'll get it to go up. There it is. (laughs) Following the Lord is not an excuse to move forward without a plan. Prayer and planning, they go hand in hand. We're going to see more about this next time. I'm excited about the next chapter where we see both his spiritual approach to the problem and his hands-on physical approach to the problem. And then finally, God has ministry work for every one of us to do. And it may include some heavy lifting. But he will give us the strength. Do you believe that? See, that's living by faith, not by sight. We're trusting God will give us the strength to do this job. And he sees the work that we do. And he rewards us for it. So I love when you think about the wall. It says you are like living stones. are being built together into a temple in which God's spirit dwells. Isn't that beautiful? That's the church being built together into a temple. Every single stone working together unto a common purpose. So. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word serves as such a strong example for us, God. And I thank you for this man, Nehemiah, for his faithfulness, his courage, for the fact that he cared so much about people and about their needs, and the fact that he cared so much about your glory, God, that it drove him to seek your will in prayer. It drove him to... Get involved and to serve. And God, I know that you want to do a great work through each one of us as well. So I pray that you would remove whatever barriers are keeping us from seeing that work that you have for us. I I pray that you'd remove whatever distractions are keeping us from doing that work. And God, I, I pray that we would trust fully in your power that is at work in us, not our own strength. God, when we are weakest, you are strong. And you show us your strength in our times of weakness. So, God, I pray that you would use us to accomplish a great work for your kingdom and for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Please stand.